The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, there was a statistic that came out a couple weeks ago that showed that Chinese oil buying from Saudi Arabia went up by 47% in 2019, and in so many ways... That really, to me, was a very important data point because it shows that the growth of interest that the Chinese have in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf and in the Arab world is growing up a lot. At the same time, it also presents a real challenge to Africa because it shows that the Chinese have more options than I think a lot of African stakeholders believe at this point. Africa, in many ways, feels indispensable to the Chinese, and I actually believe that Africa is becoming increasingly dispensable to the Chinese. So, for example, the Chinese largely buy three categories of products from Africa, oil, timber, and minerals. The vast majority of that they can now buy from a lot of other parts of the world. And what we're seeing is they're starting to do that. And the engagement in particular is going up in North Africa, in the Middle East, in the Persian Gulf, and that's going to be our topic of discussion today. We're also seeing that the Mediterranean itself is increasingly important to China and increasingly complicated for China. You know, so obviously the Mediterranean has a lot of, of extremely valuable shipping facilities. It's close to Europe. The, you know, kind of the, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of commercial, cal, you know, calculations going into it. But politically, the Mediterranean is extremely complex. Um, and in a lot of ways, China has relatively little experience in dealing with those complexities. Today we have two of the most interesting, fascinating people in this space, Dr. Andrea Giselli, who's a researcher at the School of International Relations and Public Affairs at Fudan University in Shanghai. He's also the project manager at the China Med Project, uh, which is the China Mediterranean Project. And uh, he's, a he's a specialist in following Chinese foreign policy and Middle East relations. A very good afternoon to you, Andrea. So fine, so happy we finally had you on the show. Same. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. And then we're also thrilled to have on the line uh, Mohammed Al-Sadari, who is the head of Asian Studies at the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies based in Riyadh. Uh, but he's also working on a postdoc at the Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Hong Kong, where he's doing research on religion and the Belt and Road. Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us today from Hong Kong. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting to have both of you guys on because there's a lot of questions that we've had in looking at China's growing presence in North Africa, the Mediterranean, the Middle East, and the Gulf. There isn't a, a, a word to kind of bring all of those together, but so I'll have to figure out the way to characterize it without putting that list there every single time. Uh, let me start with a couple talking points that we'll get to throughout the show with both of you. First of all, uh, there's a, a crisis going on in Libya right now, and the Chinese have introduced a new concept of something that Alessandro Arduino, he's a gentleman, that we're an expert on, uh, on, on China military issues that we've had on the show previously, he calls the new China non-align movement. 
that is, the Chinese are putting bets on all sides of the Libyan conflict, then the conflict, the, the interesting point that I want to start with you, Mohammed, is about Xinjiang. And this was a fascinating uh, topic to look into, particularly at the beginning of the year when Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi made his first overseas visit. He stopped off in Cairo. And rather than shy away from the Xinjiang issue, which is a very contentious, very provocative issue, particularly in the eyes of the United States and European countries, he brought China's policy on Xinjiang right to the heart of the Arab street and in a press conference with his Egyptian counterpart laid out the case for what uh, China is doing. Now, the Chinese claim that they are fighting terrorism and they are uh, re-educating people. There is well-documented information that shows that the Chinese have interned uh, upwards of a million people, uh, Muslim Uyghurs, in, I, I don't know what, in detention facilities. People are held there against their will. You are not volley free to leave. Now, this is an issue that you would think would rile up the Arab world and the Muslim world, but it isn't. He brought it right to the Arab street, and he received a very warm reception from the Egyptian foreign minister. And at the same time, there's not been a single Muslim or African country that has sided with the United States on Xinjiang over uh, the Chinese. Can you, as you're in your studies of religion and the Belt and Road and thinking about Xinjiang and the politics and diplomacy, Give us a little bit of insight into what is going on in terms of why the Chinese have not met the kinds of objections that a lot of countries in the West think they should on the issue of Xinjiang. Well, thank you so much for your question. Um, I think it's a very complex and multifaceted issue as to why we're seeing the current reactions that we're seeing today. Um, on the, for example, one aspect of it is that there is a real knowledge gap exists across much of the region in terms of the realities of the Muslim presence in China, not just in Xinjiang, but in broader China writ large. Uh, and because of that knowledge gap, there isn't much of a recognition about sort of the, the pressures and changes in policies that have been enacted vis-a-vis -vis these Muslim communities in recent years. Um, and also, I think China has, in many ways, ex effectively exploited that knowledge gap. So we've seen over the last 10 years, especially from 2009, when uh, the Urumqi riots had taken place, that the Chinese state has invested significantly in penetrating the region through United Front tactics, uh, trying to reshape media discourses in Arabic about Muslim issues and Xinjiang particularly, by inviting editors, journalists, influencers, and the like. Um, another aspect of it that a lot of people don't take really into consideration is that the Arab streets and Arab elites uh, are to some extent exhausted by transnational Muslim issues. Um, you know, this is a region from 2011 that had been experiencing significant upheaval and instability. Uh, and so, there isn't much of, uh, let's say, an, an emotional capacity to really respond to what's happening in Xinjiang. And another aspect to that is that people have become extremely doubtful about these narratives of Muslim suppression in Xinjiang. Um, so you see, for example, how the issue is actually sort of debated through uh, ideological alignments of the region. So for instance, 
people who are highly suspicious of political Islam, which typifies really a lot of the elites now in places like the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia or Egypt. They see calls for sympathy and solidarity with Xinjiang Muslims as something that betrays Islamist tendencies and is part of the narratives of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, supported by Turkey as a way to undermine Sino-Arab relations. Um, and it's also, you, you can see actually that there is some truth to these claims insofar as that we find, for example, Islamist outlets in Arabic that do align with the Muslim Brotherhood um, as using this issue as a way to attack the positions of these Arab states, right? As part of a broader ideological war unfolding in the region. Um, I think, yeah, there's a lot of complexity to the issue. And it's not simply a question of Arab states selling out to China because of economic incentives and whatnot. Um, the region itself has its own set of problems, and they interpret Xinjiang through that prism. Um, and how, how would you say they see the relationship with China itself in in, in the sense of do, is is there a, a feeling that China is a, a large power that needs to be to be placated? Is there still a, a relative low level of of capability in relation to China as we see with many with many African leaders, or do you see a kind of leadership that is informed and relatively canny in terms of how they deal with China? I think. In some respects, the, the strong momentum towards developing and deepening ties with China is also a reflection of the current geopolitical moment, which also probably explains the, the stances adopted by Arab elites vis-a-vis -vis Xinjiang, which is currently um, they face very difficult relations, not just with the United States, but also with the, the various sta European states. Um, and this really limits their options uh, at this current juncture. And so China gets an added importance uh, in terms of their overall foreign policies. Andrea, let me get your take on, on Xinjiang before we go on to some other topics. I have this, this idea that it is the Jay-Z rule of foreign policy. I've got 99 problems and Xinjiang ain't one. And so when we look at the countries, uh, you know, in the area that you follow in the, around the Mediterranean and when they when the Chinese come and they say, listen, stay away from 4THKXJ. So we say we have no strings attached. We actually do have strings attached and we have the four T's. The four T's are Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen and the party. HK is Hong Kong and XJ is Xinjiang. If you stand clear of those issues we're good. There's no problems with the Chinese. The moment you start butting your nose into those issues, we're going to pull our money. We're going to shut you down. We're going to isolate you as much as you can. And the Chinese don't do what the Americans do. When the Americans get into a tussle with a country, they will compartmentalize that tussle. So it'll be, you know, military to military or political to political, but it won't shut down the cultural relationship. It won't shut down trade. It won't shut down a lot of things. But as we've seen in the places where China gets into tussles, say it's Sweden or Norway or any other number of countries that do challenge China on 4THKXJ, it's an all-encompassing shutdown. And what that means then, if you're a country along the Mediterranean, whether it's in North Africa or Italy in the case that's now a Belt and Road country, that is really not a fight you want to pick with the Chinese because you don't have a domestic constituency 
that is really pressuring you. So why pick the fight? Give us a little bit of take on the Xinjiang issue as you see it from the Mediterranean, the broader picture in North Africa and maybe even Southern Europe. It's, it's a bit of a complicated issue in the sense that my impression is that through the work that we do uh, at the China Med Project, so we monitor the Chinese debate on the Mediterranean region and basically how countries in the region kind of talk and write at least about China's role there. We see that actually Xinjiang, like, of course, like Mohammed is very right to talk about uh, the complex relation between, let's say, the Gulf, China and Xinjiang in this sense. But I think it, as you go, it's kind of as you move Westward, you see this issue becoming less and less important, uh, at least in the debate, in the narrative, I would say. Um, uh, honestly, like uh, over the last few years, since we have been monitoring the debate in North Africa about how China is perceived there, uh, we really found very, very few, uh, say, articles in North African media talking about that. Um, so, of course, it's difficult to say how much that reflects the actual situation of what people think, especially in a media environment that is not exactly uh, transparent or free. Uh, but my impression is that the, the kind of the debate as far as way between North Africa and China uh, is not really focused, is, doesn't really include that issue at the moment. Uh, there are other issues, there are other issues that are much more important, especially uh, you mentioned Libya at the very beginning. I think that's really what like brings the Chinese into into North Africa, what really catch catches that their attention. Uh, if we if we look at more South Europe, uh, I would say that again it's there is a honestly I don't I don't see much interest from South European countries to go you know and debate uh, uh, like all those issues that you talk about. Uh, we saw that it, it, like already Italy probably was a bit of an exception with the with Hong Kong, with the, uh, basically the video conference with, uh, uh, about Hong Kong in Italian Senate, uh, uh, that, of course, there was a strong reaction from the Chinese embassy, Italian politicians fought back. Uh, but I would say that, uh, like, if there's nothing particular that brings those issues into the national debate of, let's say, Italy, Greece, or Spain, or in this case, also North, Europe, North African countries, they do not go to look for sort of troubles. Um, yeah, uh, so it's, it's sort of a stealthy issue. It's just kind of, uh, people don't talk about it, or at least not so openly. It's not really the focus of the relationship with China. Well, that, that's exactly the thing, Kobus, that drives the Americans crazy, because they're trying to build a coalition, particularly on issues like Xinjiang, and say, why don't you guys get it? But at the end of the day, in sub-Saharan Africa as well, South Africa, where you are, it's just not an important issue. What's your take on Xinjiang from South Africa, Kobus? Well, South Africa is very far away from from this this debate, um, and actually, as is all of Africa yes. for the most part, right? <laughs> yes, um, and and you know, kind of. Uh, you know, it hasn't actually shown up a lot in, in general South African discourse. Um, and I think the main reason is because a lot of Africa's relationship with, with China is very, very focused on development. Um, and I think one of one of the main weaknesses, I think, in, in, in the U.S.'s approach to this issue and, and actually their, their approach to the China-Africa relationship as a whole is that they don't, that they find it difficult um, to really understand how uh, uh, all-consuming obsession development is in the relationship. You know, I think, I think they kind of understand it on an intellectual level. They're like, yeah, yes, you know, 
um, development is really important and we all need to work together for development. But they come from countries that have been developed for a long time already. You know, kind of they, they, they've, they've had... So the, you know, the, those officials are people who frequently, you know, obviously, you know, speaking for a large group of people and, and their circumstances are different. But, you know, I think Americans, Europeans, they, they have had several generations of their own families living in developed circumstances. The, you know, the, the, the kind of burning aspect of, of development in, in Africa is something that I think that the Chinese understand and that, that the Westerners frequently don't. Um, they don't understand the emotional and like all-consuming aspect of it. Um, Andrea, um, segueing to Libya, um, you made the point that, um, that, in, that Libya is to a certain extent changing Chinese uh, foreign policy engagement or the ways that they, that they engage in, in, in foreign conflicts. I wonder if you can unpack a little bit what the Chinese are doing in Libya at the moment. So basically, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, so first of all, yeah, Libya is a very particular case in Chinese foreign policy in the sense that um, before 2011, they developed quite a significant presence there, let's say from 2010, no, 2009, more or less. Uh, and of course, with Libya, everything was shut down. Uh, since then, like at least according to all the data that we gather uh, through the China Med project, you see that basically there is no real, real Chinese activity there. Even the embassy is not there anymore. Uh, they operate from Tunis, uh, in Tunisia, right? So it, it, the Chinese are sort of, uh, I think Libya for them has become a very particular country. There is something that they do not really want to be involved uh, in the sense that it's, they don't have much interest. Uh, but at the same point, it, it, it gains such a like, high relevance in, the, in their foreign policy uh, in, in 2011. There's a how forced to follow it. Also to see how the situation in broader North Africa develops. Indeed, if you look at the number of Chinese workers in North Africa, you see that although, of course, the bulk of the sort of decrease uh, of these numbers was in Libya, so minus 36, 36 37,000 people, you see that through, through, through North Africa and partially in the Middle East, there was a general scale back of Chinese human presence. Uh, in, in the following years, it sort of, uh, you know, uh, it, it started to grow again. Uh, but at the moment, I, I believe, at least, uh, I, I haven't been in Libya, <laughs> uh, but my impression is that there's nothing really going on in Libya. Chinese are just waiting and looking from the outside. There has been, interestingly, um, 2017, I believe, in December 2017, a notice issued by the uh, Consular Affairs Division of the Chinese MFA, uh, basically naming and shaming a certain Mr. Wei and a certain Mr. Chiang for or investing in a steel mill in Libya and bringing there dozens of workers from Hubei and Hunan. So it was literally naming and shaming. But I think that was some sort of an exception. Um, basically, since 2011, the MFA has, has been telling to Chinese nationals not to go to Libya. If you're in Libya, you should leave immediately. Um, so they sort of tried to avoid to be involved uh, in, in any direct way in there. Mohammed, let me ask you a question that I brought up at the beginning of the show related to an essay that was written by Dr. Alessandro Arduino, who is the principal research fellow at the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. And he wrote in the South China Morning Post, here's the real reason China isn't taking sides in Libya. And what he said was that China, which has long had the non-interference doctrine, so that's the idea that they will not interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. That's a principle in their foreign policy that dates back all the way to the Zhou Enlai era a half a century ago. It's debatable whether or not they really religiously live up to that standard, but that's on their books and it's been there. 
Now what Dr. Arduino is saying is that there's something called the non-alignment strategy. And in Libya, we're seeing it very, very clearly. Interestingly, we saw it in Zimbabwe as well, where the Chinese will put money on basically every political party. And whoever wins, well, they win too. And this seems to be one of the tactics and strategies that the Chinese are using in the Gulf and in the Middle East as well, where they have been able to somehow avoid the very, very touchy sectarian politics between Sunni and Shia, between Israel and the Arab world, and they've been able to maintain somewhat stable, positive ties, productive ties with all sides, including Israel and Iran at the same time, and Saudi Arabia and Iran at the same time. Talk to us a little bit about this use of the, is the non-alignment policy that they're using, that Dr. Arduino says they're using in Libya, can that also be applied to the region in the world that you're from in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf? Or is there something else that's going on that we're missing? Well, I think it's a useful framework to think about Chinese engagement in the region writ large. I mean, the case of Saudi Arabia, as well as maybe some of the other Gulf states, because of the unitary nature of political power, we don't necessarily see that dynamic as much. You know, at the end of the day, the Chinese party state engage, engages with the central authorities there. But I think, for example, in the case of Yemen, where we find a very similar situation to Libya of an ongoing civil war between the Hadi legitimate government uh, versus the Houthi uh, uh, government uh, that effectively controls much of northern Yemen, we do find a very similar dynamic where uh, China has not only reiterated its support for the legitimate government, which currently resides in Riyadh, but it has also built up diplomatic relations with the Houthi movement over the last four or five years, uh, inviting delegations to come to Beijing, uh, engaging with them on the ground through its embassy. Um, I think in many ways, it's the reflection of a very you know, smart political approach of hedging its bets where it counts. Um, if I may, I'd like to add something though to uh, the earlier discussion that we had on Xinjiang, um, which I had forgotten to mention. I think, you know, we, when we talk about why there is a lack of public reactions to these particular issues, we have to also take into account that we live in an era where a lot of the narratives and news that circulates about these issues is now thought of in terms of fake news. Um, and so there is a considerable degree of skepticism among Arab publics that consume social media news, particularly uh, of issues related to Xinjiang. Um, I'd like to give uh, two examples, actually, that came out this week um, that sort of reflect this high degree of skepticism. And interestingly enough, these two examples are connected to um, the coronavirus epidemic. Um, so a few days ago, actually, on WhatsApp, as well as on Twitter and other media outlets, there were these two videos that were circulating widely. Uh, the first video was uh, a clip of President Xi Jinping's visit to a mosque in Ningxia back from 2016. And he was accompanied by the head of uh, the Islamic Association of China, Yang Fami sort of going a tour, going inside the mosque, etc. The other example or the other clip was of a Friday prayer being held in a mosque in Dali in Yunnan in southwest China. 
Um, and what happened was is that these videos were circulating in Arab social media as part of a narrative in which apparently China, after having suppressed Islam for the past few years, was now reopening the mosques and appealing to the Muslim communities there to pray to God to essentially cleanse China of the epidemic. Um, and what happened was that the actually several outlets in the Gulf, some of which are semi-governmental, uh, had come out and debunked these videos. And there was actually an interesting debate that took place on editorials and newspapers where essentially these videos were given as examples as to why people need to be wary about news pertaining to Xinjiang. Uh, that it was all part of the fab fabrications that were being concocted in order to undermine strategic relations and to sort of exploit people's emotional feelings about these issues. It's very, very interesting. Um... You know, kind of as 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 you mentioned at at the top, um, that you know a lot of your of your research um, relates to narrative, um, and you know the the issue of fake news is is obviously part of that. Um, in 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 a slightly wider sense, I was wondering um, how you see the narrative of the Belt and Road playing in you know kind of in the MENA region. Obviously, you know in, in a lot of in a lot of ways, the Belt and Road Initiative is almost all narrative, you know, kind of it's, it's a lot of disparate projects kind of like woven together by narrative. Um, and do, do you see that narrative having any kind of traction or like imaginary power kind of in, in the MENA region? Yes, for sure. I mean, um, certainly in the case of the Gulf, for instance, a lot of the national development projects, uh, Oman 2040, Saudi 2030, Kuwait 2035, I think it's all years. Um, all of them have been discursively linked with the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and essentially, uh, China's entry, Chinese capital and Chinese economic dynamism is sort of imagined as the main solution to the dilemmas a lot of these Gulf states are facing, which is essentially how do they transform their rentierist political economies that are highly dependent on oil revenues with overbloated public sectors into dynamic, sustainable economies, right? And you can already see that a lot of officials in relation to this discourse and imaginaries about the Belt and Road Initiative uh, now invoke a lot of sort of these um, imagined successful Chinese models, right? So Shenzhen is invoked uh, as one uh, type of city that they would like to replicate in the context of all of the developmental projects they're pursuing, whether it's, for example, the high-tech Neom city that Saudi Arabia is seeking to establish in the Northwest or uh, Silk City in Kuwait and so forth. Um, but what's interesting actually, and again, this sort of goes back to the older point about sort of that there is a persistent knowledge gap about not just the realities of Islam in China, but also just simply how China functions politically is that certain elites in the region are also talking about the need to replicate a so-called China model in terms of pursuing their own modernization and enacting successfully these economic reforms. What, but what's interesting is that they sort of seek to replicate an imagined centralized model of China right now, as opposed to say, the political configurations that existed back in the 1980s during the, in the context of the Gaiga Kaifeng. Um, 
So yeah, the, the Belt Road Initiative has penetrated the discourse of the region significantly, uh, and also in other places beyond the Gulf. I think uh, Andrea and I had also written a paper on Syria, and I think he could expand a bit on that in terms of also where the Belt and Road fits into it. Yeah, so Andrea, let's take this up into your corner of the world, including Syria as well as the Mediterranean, and picking up on what Mohammed was talking about in terms of the narrative and, and, and whether or not it's gaining the traction in the in the Mediterranean and in places like Syria that it is in the Gulf and the Mideast. So I think uh, basically Mohammed explained very well kind of one side of how the Belterone narrative is gaining traction there. So more sort of in, in, like domestic-oriented traction, let's put it this way. So Belt Road as a way to kind of learn from China uh, a certain kind of political model. Uh, of, sorry, yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's important to emphasize that it is also like a foreign policy effect. Uh, as Mohammed was saying, like, for example, in our study on Syria, this is very clear. So the Belt Road, in, at least in, in, the in, in the Syrian case, is in basically a sort of a, an alliance that Syria is part of. Um, so in a way, sort of, it kinda, it kinda, the Syrians reinterpreted the Belt and Road in a way that fits better with their goals. Uh, in a way, we see the same was in North Africa, something similar that's happening. So for example, almost a lot of countries, for example, Egypt is the first one that comes to my mind. Uh, they, they reinterpret the Belt and Road as a sort of it's a new framework for the, their relations with China. So they say, well, China is interested in, you know, in building connectivity, uh, in, uh, you know, ports, uh, railways, and, and so far and so on. So we have to position ourselves as a sort of the gateway, like the, basically the bridge between China's Belt and Road and Africa. This is Egypt in particular, but also other countries are doing the same. So, you know, we see a sort of reinterpretation of, of 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 the Belt and Road that sometimes also Chinese I don't think that too comfortable with. Uh, well, of course, in the case of this, you know, a sort of uh, more sort of infrastructure centered reinterpretations, like, like in the case of Egypt or other countries that say, you know, we should invest in our ports, for example, so this way we can be in the the, in the gate for Chinese goods to Africa. And this is something that I'm sure the Chinese are very happy with. But at the same time, for example, in the case of Syria, I'm not that's sure that there is the same kind of the same level of enthusiasm on the Chinese side to be to have their narrative somehow hijacked, uh, you know, in in way that serves better the the goals of of well, in the case of Syria. Um, so this is to say that sometimes I think when we look at the narrative of the Belt and Road, there so um, we oftentimes I believe we we overlook the agency of the countries in the region and how they basically use this narrative uh, to basically support and justify their own policies. Uh, I believe, uh, again, in the case of Syria, we see often the idea of Belt and Road. Uh, it's connected to the idea of these axis of resistance where so basically uh, there is Syria, Iran, uh, for example, they're part of this axis of resistance against, the Western, against Western powers and somehow China is backing that, which I... Honestly, I don't think Chinese policymakers uh, have any intention to do that in a, in any sort of in such a strong way, at least. Um, so we see that the Belt and Road is being transformed uh, also by local actors in ways that sometimes do not really fit with Chinese goals. 
Um, Andrea, relating relating to that, um, the we, we've seen over the last few years there's a lot of discussion in Africa, particularly in in East Africa, on the the rise of Turkey and United Arab Emirates, particularly as as development partners for Africa. And in some cases, that has been couched as a kind of a competition with China. You know, like for example, um, you know, between Turkey and Turkish and Chinese contractors in Tanzania, for example. But I've also heard that in lot that that um, centers like Dubai are increasingly serving as bases for Chinese companies interested in doing doing business in Africa. What is your your assessment of of the the level of competition and and or cooperation between rising powers like Turkey and the UAE and China in Africa? I believe that at economic level there is certainly a, a growing competition among them. Uh, even though this is something that at least on the Chinese side is always sort of de-emphasized, uh, you, they tend to sort of ignore this issue in their debate. So, uh, for example, when like you know with the with the problem in Djibouti between uh, DP World and China Merchants Group, uh, this is something that I expect to you know to pop up many times in the Chinese debate, but it's basically it, it's nowhere to find. Uh, so it's it, I believe that this is the sort of economic the economic aspect of this eventually like this sort of rising competition between China, the UAE, and Turkey, at least on the Chinese side, tend to be officially at least overlooked. And I think this is more about uh, sort of the, the the more the diplomatic priorities of China in the region. Uh, they don't want to have any problem neither with Turkey, of course, because of Xinjiang, neither with the UAE because of the. Emirates' influence in in the region and Africa. Uh, however, uh, however, I would I would say that sometimes these issues come up, uh, but not be, like sort of uh, problem diplomatic problems in the region between China and this country, the countries that you mentioned. They do come up, but usually for non economic reasons. I, for example, right now I was reading to the comments made by Chinese uh, analysts and scholars on. Uh, Turkey's decision to, you know, to the, to intervene in Libya, they're highly critical of that. Um, so I, I, I believe that for the moment, uh, if we're going to see some sort of, uh, you know, um, clash or in a case, uh, disagreement between China and these countries, it's, it's, it's going to be about regional stability mostly rather than economic, let's say only, uh, quote unquote, uh, economic competition. So it's, I think it's this still a, a, a sort of a, a side issue. It's not really the core of China's approach to the region. Uh, and I think this is part of the broad sort of change of China's policy toward the MENA region. In the sense it used to be mostly about business, but now we see that it's mostly about stability. And it means that stability is more important than anything else. Uh, and I think this applies to both how China relates to uh, uh, the government of host countries, but also relates to how China, uh, but it's also about how China relates to other countries in the region. Uh, as as long as you do not create troubles, you don't, you know, you don't, your action do not increase instability, it's fine. You know, business problems can be dealt at, you know, at the lower level. Uh, but as soon as your action, you know, uh, do not help, to the peaceful resolution, as they say, to the to, polit to finding a political solution to crisis, then it's an issue. Uh, although I think China is still trying to figure out exactly how you know to to enforce in a way to to make sure that its preferences are fully taken in, into account by other countries.
Mohammed, since our time is running short, I want to make sure that we we, we address the coronavirus story because in uh, continental Africa, this is probably the dominant story that has a potential to reshape part of the China-Africa narrative in many ways. The concern, obviously, at this stage of the game, and by when we're recording this, there has been no, no confirmed case of coronavirus that has made it to Africa. By the time that this show is published, that may have changed. Uh, in the Middle East and the Gulf, uh, similar preparations are underway as well to, to, pr- to protect themselves against a viral outbreak. Uh, what impact do you think the coronavirus uh, crisis is going to have on China's narrative in, in these parts of the world? Already, you know, before we, of course, talk or address uh, the narrative issue, I think there is already a felt economic impact uh, arising from this epidemic. Uh, in the sense that, for instance, a few of the Gulf states, most notably Kuwait, have moved ahead and have imposed uh, entry barriers for citizens as well as residents of China and Hong Kong. And I think similar measures are going to be enacted across the board in many parts of the Gulf. Um, And there has also been a significant recall of citizens. Uh, In the case of Saudi Arabia, the community of Saudi students in Wuhan as well as in other cities. Uh, And as far as I know, a total withdrawal of Saudi citizens in Hong Kong. So I'm probably one of the last few here. Um, So there, and of course, there are sort of short and medium term ramifications for it in terms of energy demand, uh, in terms of uh, just simply the traditional economic Uh, elements that shape or characterize relations between the Gulf and China. What's interesting in terms of public narratives about it is uh, that you see, like in the case of elsewhere, there is sort of a latent Sinophobia that is surfacing and coming to the fore, uh, where, you know, a lot of people are sharing fake news articles as well as videos related to Chinese eating habits, to Chinese cultural practices that have given rise to this epidemic. Um, And there is, of course, a lot of sort of, unfortunately, very racist and very problematic discourses that are circulating as a result. Uh, And you do hear, and maybe this is a reflection of a residual sentiment about what's happening in Xinjiang, for example, Uh, is you do hear this uh, particular narrative that what's happening there is a result of the persecution of Chinese Muslims, that the epidemic was divine punishment for this. Um, And so you can see how, for example, that also connects to some of the examples I had mentioned earlier uh, with regards to the videos of supposedly China re-engaging its Muslim community and lifting the restrictions as a way to Uh, address this divine punishment. Um, But yeah, it's it's interesting on so many different levels. And I think what another interesting aspect in terms of narratives is what the states are doing right now. Um, So if you look at the other side of the Gulf in terms of Iran, what I've noticed over the last two weeks is that there has been a very well orchestrated state campaign Uh, to express sympathy with China, which might reflect really how limited Iran is in terms of its ability to materially support China, but is actually lending considerable discursive support. So the foreign minister, the head of parliament, the ambassador to China um, have all created special videos uh, 
essentially saying, you know, Jiao Zhongguo, Jiao Wuhan. Uh, and they've done very similar campaigns at the public level, and they've tried to disseminate it widely on different social media platforms, including Chinese ones such as Weibo and WeChat. And what's happening is that some governments in the Gulf are also reproducing this, uh, probably as a way to conceal sort of the, the measures that they're enacting to withdraw citizens and the like, and also as a way to express political support to the Chinese state that wants this type of um, global expressions of support for it at this time of, uh, in facing the epidemic. And would it make sense to see that to see that in the context of the recent tensions between Iran and the U.S. as well? Oh yes, for sure, for sure. I mean, I this is why I find it so interesting um, because to me it is it doesn't strike me as a grassroots campaign when you have a very consistent messaging when you have. Uh, especially for the public messages where you have, you know, series of Laobaixing, normal Iranian citizens issuing the same message. To me, this uh, suggests that there, it's a state-led campaign, right? And it's an attempt to sort of present or offer a narrative of Iran as standing with China at this time of crisis. Andrea, let's wrap up our discussion with a coronavirus kind of take and how you think it will impact the regions that you cover in the Mediterranean? Again, I think it's a bit too early exactly to understand what's, uh, what will happen. But I believe the reaction in like both on the public opinion side and on the kind of state side is going to be quite similar to what we are already seeing in the Gulf. Um, as if we move a bit kind of northward to, so to southern Europe, uh, I think there is a bit of, uh, you know, kind of hysteria in this case. Uh, I think countries are still trying to figure out exactly uh, how to balance uh, so strong or want to be stronger trade relations with China and at the same time, uh, uh, you know, uh, public opinion that it, uh, at least I can say in Italy, people are kind of a bit really scared, <laughs> uh, I believe, for something that they should not be scared of. Um, so I, I think, of course, it's not as political as, as Mohammed was saying between, let's say, uh, in the case of Iran, there's not so much at stake. Uh, but still, there, there seem, there's something at stake. And for example, to, um, between Italy and China, uh, uh, Italy decided to stop direct flights. Uh, Chinese, the Chinese government was not ha really happy about that. Uh, uh, and now, you know, it's very difficult to understand what, what, what will happen. Um, I think it will take some time also. As, again, I, I think every government in the region is trying to understand exactly what is the uh, sc scope of the threat in terms of, uh, you know, uh, virus. Uh, uh, but also, you know, they don't want to exaggerate the reaction. Uh, they don't want to further politicize it. Uh, and, and I believe also on the Chinese side, they, China doesn't want this to become another, uh, you know, one of those issues that, that uh, Eric mentioned at the beginning, that you know, people cannot talk about or they must be very careful to talk about. I think both sides don't want it to be political, but it's very difficult not to make it given the attention of public opinion. Dr. Andrea Giselli is a researcher at the School of International Relations and Public Affairs at Fudan University in Shanghai. He's also the project manager at the China Med Project. Uh, Andrea, before we go, quickly tell us a little bit about the China Med Project, uh, because I think it might be new to a lot of our listeners, but they will probably be very, very interested to see the kind of work and, and join some of the mailing lists that, and subscriptions that you guys offer. 
Sure. So the China Med project was launched in 2011 by the Center for Mediterranean Area Studies of Peck University, together with the Torino World Affairs Institute, which is part of the Two China Hub, which itself is a consortium of, of other institutions, including the University of Torino uh, and the ESP. Um, basically, what we do is we monitor, uh, we collect data, and we monitor the relationship between China, North Africa, the Middle East and Southern Europe. And we have, of course, we have a team of young researchers uh, with different language skills. Uh, so let's say every month we produce a short report of how Chinese media cover the region and at the same time how regional media from uh, all these countries, so South European countries, Middle Eastern countries and South African countries cover China's role in the region. It, this is totally free. It's on our website, China, www.chinamed.it. Um, so... All the listeners are very, very welcome to, uh, to, to visit our website and get in touch with us on Twitter. Excellent. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. And Andrea, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Either on Twitter, I'm quite active on there, or they can just send me an email. Um, but I think for the moment, Twitter is a bit better and uh, we can further our uh, you know, discussion eventually via email or Skype later on. Great. And then Mohammed Al-Sadari is the head of Asian Studies at the King Faisal Center uh, for Research and Islamic Studies, based in Riyadh. But he, as we heard earlier, is one of the last Saudis now left in Hong Kong, where he's pursuing his uh, postdoc at, in the Institute of Humanities and Social Studies at the University of Hong Kong, my alma mater as well. And so uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing there in your postdoc, and if people can follow some of the research that either you're doing in Hong Kong or with the King Faisal Center. Well, uh, in terms of the, the postdoc that I'm working on, it relates to Religion and the Belt Road Initiative. Uh, it's a project that's being carried out um, under the supervision of uh, Dr. David Palmer uh, at the Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences. Uh, it's sort of a multi-year project, and we hope to sort of look on work on multiple case studies related to how religious uh, expressions and religious groups are being transformed and changed by China's growing presence in sort of the Belt and Road Initiative countries. Um, but much of my work is really focused on managing the uh, Asian Studies unit at the King Faisal Center, which is a Saudi think tank that dates back to 1983. The Asian Studies unit was established in 2015 uh, as, you know, sort of a one of the folk research focus areas of the research department. Uh, and the Asian Studies Unit essentially tries to produce cutting edge, I hope, research that tries to use local languages as well as East Asian languages in producing uh, works and reports uh, that touch upon the political, economic, and social interactions between East Asia as well as the Middle East. Uh, and people can, of course, um, look at our work uh, online. I'll send you the link. Um, we also hold workshops and public lectures. And we're essentially trying to create a base in the region to produce uh, good knowledge production on East Asia, which is currently absent. So one of the initiatives that we're uh, trying to carry out in the Asian Studies Unit is to hold yearly meetings uh, by Gulf Sinologists, uh, so these are young people who speak Chinese, who have done some research in, uh, on China on various issues, uh, and we try to meet annually. 
uh, last year we met in Riyadh. Actually, in a week's time, we're supposed to meet in Kuwait, but I'm participating digitally due to the coronavirus. Uh, but these are sort of some of the things that we're trying to to carry out. And if people want to follow what you're reading and writing, I know you're active on Twitter. What's your handle? I'm not sure. It's at Mohammed Sideri, I think, but I'll send you the uh, Regardless, I will put the link for it so people can follow you easily on Twitter. Uh, Andrea, Mohammed, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to shed some light on what is clearly one of the most important issues in China's Belt and Road and on Xinjiang and all of these, these issues in the Middle East and in the Gulf, as well as in North Africa. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Kobus, you pointed this out, that the relationship between China and all of these different countries in Africa, the Middle East, the Gulf, the Mediterranean, is so much more complex than I think the U.S.-European narrative takes into account. And when I talk to U.S. stakeholders in particular, there is this kind of confusion of, don't these countries see what China's trying to do? That is a, a very simple message you get in Washington. Don't they see that they're abusing... Muslims and locking them up and doing terrible things. Don't they see that Huawei and it's all these don't they sees. And I think to your point that it is development is the is the driving priority. Yes, they see it. But what Mohammed said is it's just not important to them. This just doesn't rise to the top five issues that they're willing to put their relationship at stake with China. And so the sto- the narratives and this is something that both Andrea and, and and Mohammed, we're, we're talking a lot about, are far more textured, nuanced, and complex than I think journalists and Western stakeholders really fully understand. And we heard that today very, very clear. Yes, I completely, completely agree. And I think there's also, there's also the danger in looking from the outside, and this is obviously something we f- grapple with a lot, is there's always the danger of inadvertently flattening the complexity of, of a particular country, not, not, you know, kind of knowing enough or not giving enough, um, you know, credence to how different groups within one country, different kind of power blocks and, and different uh constituencies think differently about these different issues and they tend to operate differently within those societies you know so the the presence of social media and the presence of fake news and all of these other related problems um, exacerbate those differences um, and make these societies a lot more complex and then frequently it's very difficult to actually track that complexity from out, from from outside especially if one doesn't also um, if one doesn't dedicate all of one's energy to it and then also not speak the language you know so i think that makes it extremely hard to to really track like how how these relationships are evolving andrea brought up the point of stability and how i think right now the priority for so many countries is to maintain stability and it's interesting he didn't go where i thought he was going to go with that point which is that one of the greatest forces for instability now in the middle east and the the persian gulf is actually the united states Will the United States remain? Will its bases stay? Will it be the the balancing actor that keeps everybody at bay? It, it's unlikely, given what we've heard out of the Trump administration. And especially if Donald Trump wins re-election in the fall, uh, he's going to be feel more empowered to withdraw troops and to act unilaterally and to do things like what he did in Iran earlier in the year. So This is, uh, in some ways, a benefit for China because China then steps in and says, we are the stable actor. We are going to bring you investment. Just stay away from 4T, HK, XJ. Those are those 
internal issues that I mentioned in, in during our discussion. And if you stay away from those issues, we'll guarantee you that we're going to be a stable actor here. We can't promise what the Americans are going to do, but at least from our point of view, we won't pull the strings on our money, our investment, our trade, and all the exciting things that we're bringing your countries unless unless you, you talk about these, these internal issues of ours. But at the same time, I think it does highlight the rather destabilizing role that many countries perceive the United States to be playing right now. Clearly in Washington and in Europe, there might be some different views on that. But that was where I thought he was going to go with it. He didn't go with it. But stability, like development, are issues that are, I think, poorly understood in developed countries. You know, kind of, but, but that also raises the interesting question of there's very clear lines for what, uh, you know, kind of what these these um, Middle Eastern and North African countries should stay away from in relation to China. There's less of a of a clear kind of list of what China should stay away from in relation to these countries. You know, China doesn't have a lot of 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 experience in in operating in the Middle East, um, and you know, the, the, it's it's potentially a minor field you know so so it could be really interesting the more the more the the engagement between the two grows like what kind of faux pas are gonna are gonna crop up you know kind of what kind of diplomatic mistakes china is going to make um in this region well i think when people talk about the withdrawal of the united states from from the region then because we talk chi- about china in a superpower context there is this perception again zero sum that if the u.s pulls out then the chinese will pull in I don't actually see the Chinese doing that. I think the Chinese are going to keep their interests much more targeted, much more narrow. They're not going to do things for the common good the way that the United States did, such as protecting shipping lanes in the Straits of Hormuz. That will not be, I think, what the Chinese do. They may be part of a multinational force that does that, but you will not see the PLA Navy on its own enforcing sanctions the way that the U.S. Navy is doing in the Straits of Hormuz, for example. So in that sense... This not zero sum theme that we've been hearing quite a bit in our discussions about Chinese engagement, whether it's in Nigeria, Kenya, or the Middle East, certainly applies to how I think the Chinese will do it. So in some ways, that will help them avoid a lot of the faux pas because they're not going to be in the nation building business. They're not going to be working with the Palestinians to try and build a Palestinian state, which, of course, the Americans don't do anymore. Uh, they're not going to be picking capitals between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. That, that, that level of detail, I just think they're going to avoid. So it might be easier for them to kind of ride above. To be honest with you, I am surprised that Arab social media and Muslim social media around the world has not taken rally to the Xinjiang issue. That That is a surprise to me, especially as an American where the slightest grievances that Americans do, and again, contexts are totally different, very, very different. China did not launch a unilateral war in Iraq, the way that the Americans did. China did not engage in hostilities in Afghanistan the same way that Americans have done. So there are very, very different contexts, but people are very sensitive to American slights against Muslims, and yet there is effectively a pass that is given to the Chinese. So that I do find remarkable. Yes, it's, it's, it is very interesting. Um, it's the question I, I have all the time with this is, is how long it can last. Um, you know, because because the you, the the biggest mystery of of the Xinjiang situation is what is the end game. 
you know, kind of is like how where is Xinjiang going to be in five years, ten years? Is is it sustainable to kind of keep this the, the current situation going? And what is the kind of outlay? And and tactics that it's going to take to do that, um, you know, the 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 amount of media attention on that issue can only increase, um, you know, unless unless the situation itself is de-escalated. Um, but you know, as as Gia Dolentino recently wrote, like nothing de-escalates in our current world, you know. So so I can imagine the situation in in um, in Xinjiang getting worse, and I can imagine the the the, the amount of international attention, particularly in in the Arab world and the Muslim world also really increasing and and that will really change change the the calculus for China I think maybe maybe but listen it took a lot of cojones to take that message right to Cairo and clearly that was arranged in advance but he brought it Wang Yi brought it to Cairo and didn't face a hint of objection and and that so you're right it may be one day but that day is not going to happen anytime soon it looks like at least in 2020 because there is a lot of support for china in the world in the arab world if not maybe not support is maybe not the right word there is no mood for objection to china <laughs> that might be a better way of framing it no one's willing to stand up on this issue against china and certainly they're not willing to side with the united states on this issue because I think that they've been warned about what the consequences would be, which would be total shutdown of the relationship with China. You pick a fight over Xinjiang and you're going to face repercussions that are severe. Interestingly, Turkey did do that. Uh, so maybe in, in Turkey's relationship with China is strained, but it has not been shut down. So I, I might need to moderate how I see that issue as well. But these are these red line issues for the Chinese that are incredibly sensitive. So... Okay, well, that'll do it. We, um, we've been wanting to talk about Xinjiang for a very, very long time. We have not had the right guest, but today talking with Andrea and Mohammed was, was fantastic. These are, of course, many of the issues that we talk about every day in our newsletter that goes out to subscribers. One of the things you're going to notice, both in our podcast and in our newsletter, is how we're expanding the definition of the China-Africa project to encompass much more of what's happening in the Middle East, the Gulf, even the Southern Europe and the Mediterranean, because those in some ways are artificial boundaries that we have used for a long time. But the Chinese and the influence and issues like the coronavirus, Xinjiang, are transcending these, these borders. So we're going to be talking a lot more about these broader issues that do impact Africa, but also have a connection into the Gulf, the Mideast, and the Mediterranean as well. So we would love for you to join our growing community of readers. Just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. We'll give you two weeks free to try it out. If you don't like it, you can cancel it anytime without any obligation whatsoever. But we would love for you to, to, to take a look and see what it's like. We're very proud of what it is. It's a great intelligence brief that's being read by people in capitals. We just got a bunch of signups from the Chinese foreign ministry. We have a lot of State Department people. Investors in, in Johannesburg are, are signing up for it. Scholars around the world uh, read it every day. So if you want to see what they're seeing and what read what they're reading, then go ahead and subscribe at China africaproject.com slash subscribe. And uh, very quickly before I go, I was remiss at the top of the show to mention that we are now part of the Seneca Network from SubChina. 
and uh, very grateful to be a part of that and a very proud member of the SupChina and the Seneca Network. So thanks a lot to those guys as well. And of course, if you're a new listener to the show from Seneca, welcome to the China Africa Project. So for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>